0: I want to take a quick second and thank my patrons who are people that make this podcast possible. All you guys that stay on and support the podcast by donating a monthly sum, I appreciate that very much. It keeps me going, and I just want to let you guys know I do look at this list all the time. I actually saw a couple of your messages over the last month or two, even though I don't respond to all of them. But, like, for instance, somebody asked last month about shipping. I forget your name, but you sent me a message on Patreon. So, today, I got a fucking shipping expert on. So, the point is, I do read the messages. I just don't have time to answer everybody. And I do appreciate every single person that signs up as a patron. Thank you so much. A lot of love from me to you. Let's get going. First and foremost, this podcast is brought to you by my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. If you want to email the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. Laura can be your personal guide to help you securing any type of gold and silver bullion that you would like. Why do I use JM Bullion as my exclusive gold and silver provider? Because they have good prices. They always have things in stock, even when other dealers are out. They turn around my orders quickly. They ship them. Usually I get a shipping notice the same day that I order them. They've been in business for a decade. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They're reputable. They get the job done. It's a no bullshit operation. And I like talking to them and I like working with them. And I hope they support the podcast forever because there's a lot of love there. So if you're looking for gold and silver bullion, check out the link to J.M. Bullion in my uh, podcast description. Or you can just reach out to Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. This podcast also brought to you by my friend George Gammon over at the Rebel Capitalist Pro Podcast. Platform. What is George doing over there? He has gotten macro experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh, to join him. And they have created a platform, A, where they're going to give you all kinds of great advice. Well, not advice, but they are going to offer up their take on the economy. They're going to offer up their portfolios, which they post in the Rebel Capitalist Pro. Forums. They do question and answers live, what feels like every day. I feel like every day I get an email that they're doing a new one. So they make themselves accessible. And if you don't know who George Gammon is, uh, he is really, I think, a very smart guy when it comes to macro and seeing the global economy through the lens which we see it through, which is not necessarily the same as, say, mm, Paul Krugman or people of the ilk. Uh, so George Gammon's a very smart guy. He's been on numerous times before, and his platform is relatively cheap, and it is worth its weight in gold. I am a member of the Rebel Capitalist Forums. I love being over there. I do a lot of reading over there. Their link is also in my podcast description. Tell George I sent you if you talk to him or not. Just check it out. The information's what is important. This podcast also brought to you by my homeboys over at the steam room the wall street jesus and sang steam room that is these guys are a household name and they're nice people too not only do i like using the steam room to check out big money coming into the options market which can help you if you are a day trader it shows you where money is moving in illiquid markets and that can be very enlightening Nobody reads tape better than these guys. Nobody understands market psychology better than these guys. So the uh, not only do I like using the Wall Street Jesus steam room, the Sanglucci steam room, whatever you'd like to call it on this particular fine day, but they're nice guys. They're honest guys to do business with. If you tell them I sent you, they're going to give you, I think it's a 30-day free trial. I lost my script that Charlie gave me but I think they will give you a 30-day free trial, and now they have to. They're contractually obligated because I said 30 days. It may have been 14, but whatever. Find Charlie Bathgate, shake the shit out of him, tell him I sent you, and he will make sure that you get a trial of the steam room, and you get to hang out with Lucci and those guys all day while they fart around and trade options. Wonderful people, experts on the market. Links to that stuff is in my podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends over at The Trader's Path. The link to that wonderful day trading community is in my podcast description. That's a guy, Pete Hedgetus my buddy, another honest guy who left the traditional, uh, let's just say the traditional day trading uh, forums because he felt like he was being front run and taken advantage of and said, I'm starting my own. It's going to be an honest business where we all try to make money together. Imagine that. So check out the link to The Trader's Path also in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, some of my newest patrons, Jim Thomas. Thank you, my brother, for checking in. I appreciate that shit. John and Adam Rossi and David Barber and Tyler. Thank you, guys. Tom Smalley and Charlie Yu, Bryce Martell. I appreciate you guys all becoming patrons and some people that have been With me for a hot minute, like Brad Potter and Garrett Baldwin. I appreciate your continued support of the podcast. Also, CJ Carey and uh, Mark Haywood. How about M3? Also in the house, I got to get M3 in there. Might be the first M3 shout out of the year. Gets me feeling warm and fuzzy inside M3. I hope you feel the same way, my brother. Today, we have Jay Mintzmeyer on, who is also another stud who I know. I got to tell you about Jay Mintzmeyer. And, and fucking first time I met this guy actually you know what I'm gonna I'll wait till I have him on the line this way he can defend himself against any and all allegations leveled against him <laughs> but Jay Mitzwire is a good dude and we've been talking for a while about trying to get him on the podcast before we get started just a reminder this is not investment advice we're not offering investment advice I am not a financial advisor. I've never passed the Series 7. I've never passed a Series 63. I'm not an RIA. I'm not a CIA. I'm not a CAIA. I'm nothing, all right? I'm just a guy sitting around just talking to people about things in hopes of better informing myself. And if my podcast listeners want to come along for the ride, well, that's their prerogative. But this is not investing in... Uh, not in Good morning, dickhead. Hold on. Let me get a sip of my coffee. I think this is not invest investing advice is what I'm trying to say. Woo, going to be an interesting morning, isn't it, if I can't wake up? <laughs> this podcast is not investing advice don't do anything that i say please generally try to ignore the entire podcast uh my guest is also not an investment advisor although he does have a service that i think uh where he offers research and i'll put the links to all that shit in the podcast description just usual standard disclaimers apply which is don't do anything that i say and keep your problems to yourself or see a therapist if necessary This podcast also has a fucking three-drink minimum. How do you like that? All right. All right, now that Jay Mintzmeyer is on the line with me, I will tell you about him. I'll tell you, I'll read you his bio, and then I'll tell you what I know about him. The bio he sent to me, this is what it says, all right? Jay Mintzmeyer is a renowned maritime shipping and deep value specialist with over 10 years of maritime sector experience. He is the head of Value Investors Edge, where he has outperformed the shipping sector average for six consecutive years and has beaten the Russell 2005 of the past six years. He has a BS in economics from Air Force Academy, an MA in public policy from the University of Maryland, and is a PhD candidate at a little community college up near Boston called Harvard. Ever fucking hear of it? Okay, now I'll tell you what I know about Jay Mintzmeier. Uh I've met Jay a couple of times at various charitable events that we, we actually go way back. When I first got my start... I was publishing on Seeking Alpha like 10 years ago, and that was really the first platform that uh, gave a voice to a lot of people that were just independent bloggers, or in my case, you know, just a degenerate with no clue what I was talking about. But uh, I remember Jay Mintzmeyer from like way back then. I remember, I I would always see his name on Seeking Alpha, so I knew that he was like active back then. And then finally, like five years ago or whatever, we wound up at the same event, and finally wound up bumping into each other in person. And I was like, holy shit, Jay Mintzmeyer, the guy from fucking Seeking Alpha from, you know, five years ago. And so we got to talking at a cocktail hour, of course, and we have stayed in touch since then. But Jay is one of those guys, and maybe, Jay, you can tell me about this, whether or not it's due to your time in the Air Force, but Jay is one of those guys that is frighteningly has his shit together. Every time I see him... He's always in a good mood. He's always bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. He's always nicely dressed. He's always respectful to everybody he talks to. He's he's just a very jovial, likable, agreeable person that is just even in setting up this podcast. I mean, it was just he's just relentless with the way that he communicates and like he's just a guy that has his act together, that has his shit together. And if you don't, Jay, then you at least give the appearance that you do. Do do a lot of other people tell you that, or is that just me? Wow, you're, you're really setting me up with that intro, Chris. I don't know. I'm going to have to live up to this in our
1: conversation. But uh, no, I try my best, and you know, it's always been great interacting with everybody. And I know we had a lot of fun with Traders for a Cause. It's such a great organization. And it was really great to meet you in person, too, because I've enjoyed following your work for the last, man, eight, nine, maybe even 10 years now.
0: Well, I remember coming down to the cocktail hour hungover at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, which, you know, I had missed whatever the day's events were. <laughs> there was a whole day of conferences and things like that. But me and my girlfriend at the time were able to pull ourselves out of bed and mosey on down to the cocktail hour and clean the shit out of our eyes. And, and there you were at, like, 5 p.m., man, holding court, finally dressed, surrounded by people. I was like, oh, my God, what kind of a guy has his shit together so much that he's actually up and awake by 5 p.m. in the evening?
1: Oh man! Well, you know, I actually lived in Las Vegas at the time, so that that probably helped. So I was able to go downtown, ah. and it wasn't—I I didn't go quite so crazy, right? If I wasn't from Las Vegas, it might have been a little
0: different. <laughs> so listen, I'm glad that we uh, finally got a chance to link up. And what's interesting is your expertise is in uh, shipping, right? And shipping stocks, shipping companies, and it's really. A convenient setup for my listeners who may not know anything about shipping and what is interesting about it because I don't know anything about it and so um, I'd like for you to just kind of open by letting people know listen what what most people know about shipping is dry ships what was that okay it was a huge scam Uh, and I just remember years ago Jay every shipping stock I saw went to zero every single one they were just constantly diluting and constantly going bankrupt it wasn't just uh it wasn't just uh dry ships it was like diana and all these other names back in the day i just remember they were just dogs all the stocks were just fucking dogs so tell me and tell my listeners what's going on in shipping and why it is somewhere people should actually kind of open their eyes to
1: Absolutely, man. Thank, thanks for that, Chris. Well, you know, we'll zoom out for just a minute and I'll talk about how I got into shipping and, and maybe that'll explain a little bit more of why I think this sector's interesting. So look, I, as you mentioned, I've been on Seeking Alpha for 10 years talking about stocks. And when I first joined, you know, I was kind of like a lot of value investors. I was, you know, let, read the Ben Graham books and the Warren Buffett letters and all that. And I was focused on a lot of like bigger, like blue chip stocks. I was, I was telling people about what I thought about Microsoft or, you know, why. Um, you know, why Amazon was this big growth story and, you know, had to grow into its, you know, price to earnings, price to sales and all that stuff. But then, you know, you realize after a while that, you know, the average guy has no edge whatsoever in a stock like Amazon or Microsoft or, or whatever, right? I mean, you got Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and all the big banks and it doesn't mean they're right, but I mean, they're spending millions of dollars on research and there's really no way to bring an edge to the table. So you start to look for areas where you can outperform, You look for areas that aren't efficient. You look for stocks that go up and they're total dogs, like dry ships, right? I mean, before that thing went to zero, that thing went on a rocket for like a year and a half, two years, right? So you look for stocks where you can find brokenness. Either it's broken because it's surging up and it's worthless, or it's undervalued. There's more cash maybe on the balance sheet than the stock trades at, or there's nothing wrong with the company, and it's super cheap, and you can invest in those companies and wait for the turnaround. So that's what brought me to shipping because I saw these opportunities all over the place. And and back in 2011 and 2012, a lot of the companies were garbage. And you're absolutely right. And the reason they were garbage is because during the middle 2000s, that's when China they, you know, they joined the WTO in 2001, there was this huge surge in trade, and every single shipping sector was red hot in the mid 2000s. I mean, 2005, 2006, 2007, red hot sector. So what happens when a sector's red hot? I mean the same thing that's happening right now with SPACs and with technology and uh, electric vehicles, right? Whenever a sector's hot, you get all the garbage companies that IPO, and they're just telling you total shit. And that's what happened in shipping. It wasn't just dry ships. You mentioned several other companies. There's ones that don't exist anymore, uh, like uh, Free Seas is one of them. Um, There is these huge company – you mentioned Diana Shipping, which – decent management and all that, but that company dropped 90%. So you had a lot of bad, risky corporate governance and all sorts of issues like that. So anyways, totally like weird sector. It's cyclical, right? So it goes – it has its highs and its lows, but it's also a commodity, which means that there's really no pricing power, right? So like you're just riding this really violent wave, and so that's all. That's how shipping is, and that's what's brought me to it. And you know, we've been able to outperform big time over the last decade. But this isn't a buy and hold, right? I'm not going to BS your listeners or whatever. Like, I'm not going to you know come on here today and and say you know put all your money in shipping and just hold on to it for ten years, right? I, I think there's a lot of plays like maybe like uranium is one of those plays where there's a lot of like really deep believers that just put their money in there and wait for ten years. Shipping's not like that. You got to be a lot more nimble. You got to you got to be trading a little bit on the edges. Um, you got to be watching the cycles. You got to be able to take a loss if things don't go your way. Um, so hopefully that, that hopefully that makes sense a little bit, and we can get more into the details of the different sectors as as we continue. Yeah, well, special. I mean,
0: from the get go, it, it's nice to kind of confirm that with this icky feeling I got about the sector uh, is is shared by you. You know that this isn't a place where you can just go in and, you know, buy something and hold it, that it is cyclical and it is kind of, there are a lot of variables and it's ever-changing. And there's a lot of, um, you know, you see, like, a lot of special dividends uh, in, uh, in you know, uh, dry bulk shipping because companies trying to unlock value. And it's just, like, you see a lot of, like, weird PEs and weird kind of valuations specifically because of that. You know, just like, just like the auto industry, you know, sometimes you'll see Ford at a PE of 7 and you're like wow all right why cuz well it's cyclical and it's capital intensive you get that same feeling from from dry shipping but there's just another layer of you know i have no clue how it works so you start talking about panamax ships and you know all this shit i have i don't even have the slightest idea maybe it's just me maybe it's cuz it's something i never looked into but or maybe it is that complicated for the average investor
1: I think there's a there's certainly a steep learning curve, and it's it's a very steep learning curve for a small stock. I mean, I mean, we're looking at stocks that are anywhere from I, I don't I don't trade the really really small ones. Like there's some ones out there that are just total garbage, like penny stocks. But I, I trade anything from maybe a hundred million market cap, uh, and and a larger stock I look at is maybe two or three billion. So these aren't very big companies, and so the amount of research that you have to put in to sort of understand the company for a lot of folks, is not worth it. Right. So there's a lot of folks that, that sign up for our research service, Value Investor's Edge, because they want to read our research reports. Like They, they still have to do their own due diligence. I, I, I really like your disclaimer you give at the front of your podcast about you know, how you're not a registered investment advisor, all that stuff. Same goes for me. Look, I'm a researcher. I, my product is research. So if I do well and the research helps people and they like it, then you know, they'll sign up for more. And so my job is to produce the best possible research. But I don't, I don't manage anybody's money. Right? I don't give any investment recommendations. I don't. I don't do any of that sort of stuff. I just tell folks what I'm seeing in the industry. Uh, I give. I tell, let folks know like what management teams are performing well, what sectors are most likely to outperform. Uh, we do like earnings estimates and, and that sort of thing over the next upcoming year. And, and we look at we look at different metrics in the sector that matter. There's a lot of sect- There's a lot of metrics in shipping that don't matter. And, and you nailed it with price to earnings. Like that can be so manipulated up and down that price to earnings is not really a good yeah, metric. In, in, in a
0: cyclical industry, it's so difficult to even use that because they might blow absolutely. out you know, a December quarter and then tank an uh, April quarter. And so how do you flatten that out? How do you, even, you know, how do you even forecast what's coming by? Go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: No, 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 absolutely spot on. And that's why we don't really use price to earnings. And another one we don't use is price to book because book value is, and I know a lot of value investors really like book value, but book value is just an accounting number. It's just a number on on their balance sheet. And so the way shipping companies work is whenever they buy a ship, they put it on their balance sheet at whatever they paid for it. Right. Well, shipping companies are, are going to screw up just as often as everyone else does, right? So a lot of times they buy ships at the very top of the market. So you look at their balance sheet and you're like, oh my God, it's a price to book of 10%. And then, like, and you're like, this is the best value I've ever seen. You know, I'm Ben Graham here. You know, I'm going to buy you this stock. And then six months later, they're bankrupt. <laughs> like, how'd that happen? Well, because the book value is meaningless, right? It's just an accounting value. So we use something called net asset value, which is NAV, and that takes the real-time ship valuations. And that's one of our, like, I, I guess I would say, like, secret sauces to the sector is we pay for quite expensive subscription services. and We've partnered with some of the biggest names in the industry and we have daily updated, uh, weekly or daily depends on the broker that we're using at the time, updated values for their ships. So when we say this is the nav, we're not saying based on some made up accounting value. We're talking about like today's shipping market and today's financials. This is what the company is worth. Now that doesn't mean the stock's going to trade there, but it gives people a realistic indication, right? Like if a, if a company has a nav that's positive, they're not going to go bankrupt. They're not going to have those problems. Doesn't mean they're not going to have you know bumps in the road, but they're going to be okay. But if you look at price to book, I mean, you can get totally bushwhacked on that.
0: And when you talk about key assets in the industry and companies that want to get aggressive with leverage or deleverage, based on how the market is doing, you're generally talking about buying and selling ships and adding and and selling from the fleet. Is that right? That's right. A lot of the money
1: in shipping. There's, there's two ways to make money in shipping One is you know just doing your core business right, right? operating ships and, but the, the other way you make money in shipping and really the, the most money in shipping is asset play right you buy the ships right. when everybody hates them and you, you sell them when everybody gets excited and that's the same we do the same thing with the stocks. Right, we buy the stocks when when they're hated. Nobody wants to talk about them, and we sell them when people get super excited about them, or at least we try to. Right, in theory, buy low, sell high. I'm a genius, you know. <laughs> but that's the that's the approach we try to take. It's, it's like an asset play type approach, and you have to in cyclical sectors, right? Like like that's everything you said. Ford, Ford Motors, same thing. Uh, I hope I don't offend anybody on the on the you know podcast. I like you know, Ford's a great company, but it's a cyclical stack. right? You you buy it when it's weak and everyone hates it you know, back in 2009, 2010, that was an amazing stock to buy. Uh, You know, a few years ago, it was time to get out. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. And so I guess when you're rounding out the, the picture of what to look for to make your investment decisions in shipping, I mean, for somebody that has zero experience in the industry like me, I mean, what what is it that you look for other than the net asset value of the ships and what they're valued at in real time and whether or not they can be uh, you know, bought or sold uh by these companies at opportune times. What what should I be looking for in terms of the actual sector? Like what the hell is going on in shipping? Like where did where do these ships leave from? What are they carrying? Like what the hell is like what is the industry? What is the like I don't get it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a good kind of segue. It gives me a chance to give a shout out to my awesome team at, at Valley Investors Edge. I got I got a guy I've been working with now for I think six or seven years. His name's James Catlin and he does our macro reports. And and I, I consider what I do to be more micro. Like I look at company specific fundamentals I look at their earnings potentials, I look at their price to NAV, I analyze the management team. I, you know, I've, known, I've known a lot of these management teams, both virtually and in person, for a decade now. So, so I do the micro side. But my partner James is all the macro stuff. And so he's always putting out, at least once a quarter, he puts out an individual report for each segment of shipping. And shipping is actually not just one big monolith. It's actually six or 7 subsegments. So you have, you have dry bulk, which I, I can tell you're more familiar with dry bulk, because I, I heard you mention you know dry ships and panamaxes and that sort of thing. And that's like your coal and your iron ore and your bauxite and agriculture products, wood ships, stuff like that. Now you have tankers, but there's there's not just one type of tanker. There's like three types, or well, there's actually probably more than three, but three broad types. There's the crude tankers, which just carry oil. You know, it's pretty easy to understand. Then there's the product tankers that carry everything from diesel and jet fuel and Uh, all sorts of vegetable oil, even all sorts of stuff. And you have chemical tankers that carry all sorts of corrosive, uh, all sorts of stuff. And those are, those are highly specialized, right? And those are a lot smaller ships. Those aren't your large super tankers that just carry that oil. And so see, we've only talked about three segments here. There's like three more, you know, it's like people are going to fall asleep. There's so many segments, but the point is that we can analyze each individual area and, you know, we're not always right. You know, I, I right? About 60, 70% of the time, but that's all you need to be in this sector, right? If you're, if you're wrong on an area, if you think, wait, look, I like LNG, for example, liquefied natural gas. And I say that sector is going to do well next year. I'm going to position myself in the best companies. What we're doing is we're marrying that macro view that James Catlin leads up. He's our lead macro guy. And we're marrying that micro view that I bring, which is what are the best companies in that particular segment. So we'll take long positions in those companies and write research reports about them. If it doesn't go our way, and sometimes it doesn't, then you have to cut your losses and, and move on and, and that's what hurts a lot of people in shipping is that they forget that this isn't a long-term buy and hold forever so maybe so maybe they get excited about something like lng or tankers and you know at the time it's a, it seems like a smart decision it seems like the time, you know we should buy some oil tankers because of floating storage that was, that was like a big thing that happened last year and a lot of people buy these stocks but then when the tide starts turning unfortunately, there's like this human nature that like, I'm not wrong, I'm just going to hold forever. And, and that's, I think, what hurts a lot of people. In, in stock, and it's not just shipping, right? That's anywhere in the stock market. But I think shipping is especially so cyclical and so violent that you have to have the latest research and you have to know the latest market data. And when that market data turns, it's okay to say, look, we were wrong, I was wrong, we'll get the next one.
0: So even if the underlying commodity is in a hundred year bull market, say oil is going to be in a hundred year bull market from here, right? It's going to go from 60 to 300 over the next hundred years or 50 years. Even if the underlying commodity is in a bull market, it doesn't necessarily mean that the shippers that are tasked with transporting it are going to be in a bull market.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's got its own supply and demand, right? So, like, oil can be doing amazing, but if there's too many oil tankers on the water and not enough oil specifically getting transported, uh, you know, then you're not going to be in a good market. And, and that's why in shipping, it's not so much about the global demand for, like, global demand of oil. It's about the supply and demand of the ships itself. And we look at something called ton miles, which is, you know, how much oil are you moving, and how far are you moving it? So that's a reason why, for example, we've we've actually been pretty bullish on the long term for oil tankers because the routes are getting longer and longer. OPEC has been cutting their production, trying to keep the oil price inflated. We're getting more and more oil exports out of areas like Brazil. Until very recently, we're getting more exports out of the U.S. Gulf, and those exports are going from Brazil and the U.S. Gulf to Asia, which is two to three times more of, of a shipping route than it was from the Middle East to Asia. So that's just one example of like that's one example of like where our macro research and those sort of reports can outline things like that that otherwise you, you might not have been thinking about.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of moving parts essentially in the in the industry. It's it's very it's very specialized. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And, and there's a lot of different management teams out there. So, you know, you say you like oil tankers or you like dry bulk, you, you got to make sure you're with the company that has good corporate governance or a good return policy. And, and that's one good thing. I want to I say something good about the shipping sector. <laughs> I feel like we've been, we've been knocking it down and kicking it, you know, and, and deservedly so at some points. But corporate governance has significantly improved over the past decade. Because, everything you said at the start, Chris, about you know a decade ago how everything went to zero and their, the companies were basically—you you said it correctly—you said one of those companies was basically a scam, right? It, the corporate governance has changed significantly. We now actually have normal <laughs> corporate boards and business practices, and uh, a lot of private equity companies have taken bigger stakes and, and made sure that management is aligned. They've gotten rid of a lot of the related party dealings. I used to have these shipping companies where basically like the the owner or the CEO of the shipping company had his own private fleet of ships. Yeah, well, that's what
0: that's what George Economou uh, from uh, Dry Ships did, right? I mean, I remember reading an article on that fucking guy like ten years ago, as Dry Ships was just constantly getting pounded into the dirt. That you know his net worth was like five hundred million dollars or whatever, and that he was constantly transacting. I don't know if it was ships or whether it was contracts or whatever between related parties and he owned not only dry ships but he owned uh, I think he either he was an executive in or owned a stake in another major company that I can't remember what it was off the top of my head but they were shuffling assets back and forth and I was just like you, you know after reading that I'm just like fuck this I'm just not even getting involved with this sector you no, know what I'm it, talking that about was
1: unfortunate. yeah that, that was unfortunate I think the company you're probably referring to was uh, let me think Ocean Rig I think it was Ocean like Rig yep, yeah. yep exactly O-rig, Yep. Another one, yeah. And and look, I mean, that was—it wasn't just George Economou, right? I mean, I, you know, we can demonize the guy and stuff, but it was several companies doing this stuff, and it was legal because they disclosed it. Yeah, they they didn't—they didn't hide it; they disclosed it. But you know, investors were so excited about the shipping sector back then. Because it was such a big bull market that they didn't even care. Like they were like, "Well, I don't care what shit you're dealing. I'm going to eat it." And, and look, that's that's what's happening right now. I don't want to change the topic to something I'm not an expert in, but that same sort of stuff is happening right now in technology and SPACs and IPOs and all sorts of stuff going on right now, where you see these companies that maybe they're not you know buying assets from their cousins, but they have this completely shoddy financials, right? And people are just like shoveling it up because it's working. And that's what shipping used to do. Now, now shipping today is much much different. There's only a couple companies like that, and I don't even deal with any of them. Um, they're, you know, they're penny stocks basically, and they're they're buying ships from their cousins and their brothers and all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, we're sticking to the main the mainstream big names.
0: So, what has because listen, the entire global economy has been thrown out of whack over the last 18 months due to the pandemic. So, what did what did shipping look like coming into the pandemic, and? What does it kind of look like now and and what has happened? And again, like what are things that my listeners can reach out and look at on their own? Like we know you have this service. I'll put the link to that in the podcast description. But a lot of people, too, may just want to dabble in this and start doing some reading and looking into it on their own first to familiarize themselves with the sector. So I guess give me uh, give me kind of the what the sector has looked like over the last two years and then maybe some good starting points for people if they want to start to familiarize themselves with uh, where it's going to go moving forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Chris. And, you know, I'll just throw out a good starting point right now for folks. Um, It's called Hellenic Shipping News. So just, again, Hellenic Shipping News. It's a free website, and they have weekly broker reports on there. So you can go to this Hellenic Shipping News website and read the weekly broker reports from, I think there's like seven or eight different companies that contribute to this website. And those broker reports are mostly free. I think they're all free on that website. And and you can get a good idea of what people are saying in the industry and what the rates are at and and that sort of thing. So that's a totally free source. I recommend it to everyone. Another source I recommend, I I just want to get the sources out of the way so I don't forget. I can get long-winded and get distracted. But uh, Splash 24-7 is another free, it's a free news site. Um, so, it's, it's not in depth company analysis, but it's, it's news and it's really good industry news. I really recommend that one. Um, one third source is Freightwaves. Uh, a buddy of mine, Greg Miller, is a really stand up analyst or, excuse me, stand up journalist who works over there. Uh, so, Freightwaves, Splash 247, and Hellenic Shipping News, those three websites will get you off to a great start and they're totally free. Um. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, I uh, don't want to just sit here like peddling my product or <laughs> whatever. You know, I'm happy to just talk about the second. I like Fright uh,
0: Waves, too. I, re- I read them for their uh, their class eight data that they usually write about monthly. And, and Fright Waves actually broke the Trevor Milton resignation story, the Nicola Trevor Milton resignation story late at night. It was like twelve thirty at night one night uh, when they broke that news. And I was like, wow, Fright Waves has got like a major serious scoop. So yeah, wow. Freight Waves is definitely legit. I enjoy reading them too.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. They actually have a little uh, virtual TV channel they've launched too. So yeah, big, big fan of Freight Waves and everything they're doing for the industry and, and the other two websites as well, Splash 24-7 and Hellenic Shipping News. Uh, not affiliated with those sites in any sort of way, just <laughs> free, great resources. So anyways, COVID-19 and what did that do to the shipping sector? Most of what it did, Chris, was was Psychological. So if you look at the shipping stocks in 2020, and I I think you said in the intro, you were very generous, but I think you said in the intro that, you know, I I mentioned that I'd beaten the shipping sector six years straight, uh, that we'd beaten the Russell 2005 out of six years. Look, the one year we did not. Be- you wrote that. You gave that to me in your bio. <laughs> you were generous enough to repeat it, but uh, <laughs> without any disclaimers. Attached, I hope
0: it's you know. true. Otherwise, I'm going to look like an asshole. <laughs>
1: uh, without any sort of disclaimers attached. But uh, no, look, the one year we did not outperform the Russell 2000 was 2020. I mean, 2020, uh, and I've been doing shipping for you know, 10 years now, uh, 2020 in terms of relativeness uh, to the Russell, to the broad market. It's the worst year I've ever had. It's 2020, and look, it wasn't because the companies weren't doing well. In fact, several of my companies, especially in the tanker space, but also starting in the dry bulk space towards the end of the year, starting container ship space, they had a great year in 2020. But nobody wanted to buy a shipping stock in the middle of a global pandemic. Right? right? Just common sense. Common sense tells you that's a sh- terrible idea. Right? But why do I like shipping? Because you know, mo- most of the time the market's wrong. Common sense doesn't always apply. Right? You have to dig a little deeper. So what happened with COVID is a lot of the like choke points in in the global industry, maybe it was the Panama Canal or maybe it was the terminals and the loading structures, a lot of that stuff got stressed, right? Either because workers were calling in sick because of COVID or or more restrictions. So so there's actually a lot of artificial supply reduction, right? Because the global fleet got dislocated and the terminals got slowed down. Well, shipping is just supply demand. And it's supply demand of the ships themselves. And with all these lockdowns and all this stimulus money retail spending right you think going to like walmart or target or buying from amazon that spending actually went up because right people couldn't travel people couldn't go on trips so the global spending and demand for products um everything except for energy obviously you know oil went down a little bit because nobody was flying anywhere right but all the other stuff went up so you had demand going up and supply going down and these companies are making a killing and even crude tankers which I had a you know, crew tankers had a, had a very, <laughs> very exciting year in 2020 up and down, but they made a ton of money. In fact, they made more money in 2020 uh, than normally they make in two or three years. So the, the companies did very well, but the stocks did not go well. So what does that mean for us? Well, first of all, whenever I would report like my quarterly, you know, model portfolio averages, I had to you know <laughs> like, oh, here's, an, here's a weak report from Minsmar, you know? and I, So that didn't feel good, but it also gave us a good time to allocate right, put a little bit more money into the sector, buy a little bit more of these stocks. And you know, year to date, Chris, I mean, it's what we're recording on the 21st today, February. So it was that, uh, seven weeks into the, in the new year, eight weeks into the new year. Um, our speculative portfolio is up uh, 50% in seven and a half weeks. Um, our risk reward portfolio is up 31%, I think it is, it might be 29%, I'll pull that up. And, and that's just in seven or eight weeks because there is that massive realization that holy cow, these companies had a great year. 2020. Holy cow! Common sense was wrong that you know COVID would be bad for these companies. So the biggest story that we're really excited about right now is container ships. And I I think you you follow me on Twitter. You've probably seen. You're probably tired of me by now. But I'm always posting like the latest container ship rates are out and they're rocketing again. And why is that? Well, the reason that is is because of all the lockdowns, of all the stimulus spending, everyone's disposable income. I I don't like that term, but their disposable income was going up, which is which is counterintuitive. Because you, you wouldn't think that with a pandemic. And, I, and, I, and it's sad too. Yes, because there's it's a lot just, of it's just
0: another way that the central banks are throwing basic economic laws completely out of whack.
1: It, it's a mess. And, and it, it's sad too because there's a lot of people that really are suffering. And I just feel like a lot of these stimulus plans, they're just throwing money at everybody. They're throwing money at everything. And a lot of the people that are really suffering aren't getting as much as they need. And there's a lot of people that don't really need any money. And they're getting money. And what do they do with it? Well, a lot of times they go out and spend it on more junk. Well, you know, that helps our business. But that helps the container shipping business because all of a sudden all these stores have empty shelves.
0: And they have to Container restock. ships are like when I watch a Jason Statham movie and he's in the shipyard and he's, you know, beating the shit out of guys in between all those big metal fuckers. Those things that they stack up on the ships, those are container ships. That's what you're talking about, right? Those big-
1: I, I love it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And, and, you know, I always explain to folks, like if you, if you don't know what container ships, look at the next railroad train, look at the next train that goes by your house or look at the next truck on the road. All those little boxes are either 20 footers or 40 footers. Got it. And uh, so, so the little boxes are 20 footers and the longer ones you see on the railroad cars are 40 footers. And these container ships, Chris, can hold anything from 5,000 of those boxes up to over 20,000. I mean, we're talking massive transport Okay. And, and that's, that's, that's the sector that's doing you know, the Asia-to-U.S. trade. It's doing the Europe-to-Asia trade. Uh, a lot of interregional stuff too. And that sector, the really cool thing about this sector, Chris, is that it's a long-term cyclical market. It's not like tankers. It's not like dry bulk where it's boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, bust. It's a multi-year type of cycle. And you can go back 20 years and see this kind of cyclical curve. It's a nice kind of smooth up for three or four years, down for four or five years, up for three or four. So we were already on the cusp of a major recovery in 2019. In fact, the 2019 rates were actually quite strong. Then we came into COVID and there was like two or three months of disruption where rates went down temporarily. But then we had all that other stuff I was talking about, right? All the dislocations, all the additional demand. So what that did was it took an already recovering cycle, and gave it like a supercharge, right. right? So we got rates that are at 13 year highs right now. And folks say, naturally, they say they're skeptical because they say, well, I saw the same thing in dry bulk. I saw the same thing in tankers. Right. This is just gonna collapse tomorrow. And, and first of all, disclaimer, like, I don't know what rates are gonna do in six months. We, we, we never know that for sure. All we can do is give our best guess. But these rates that are being quoted are not spot rates. They're not like, oh, here's the rate for 30 days. These are one year and two year charter rates that are being quoted. So if a deal is signed today, that locks in that cash flow for anywhere from one year to two years. So it's not like tankers and dry bulk where you get one rate today and you get a totally different rate next month.
0: Yeah, and P- Peter Schiff's actually been talking about these on his last few podcasts, talking about there's such demand for these container ships in Asia. Uh, I forget what he was saying, whether or not – I think he was saying they were shipping them right back from the U.S. empty – to get them back to Asia or or something like they couldn't, so they were building new ones or something. I I forget what he was saying, but he he brought up the fact that there is intense demand for these container ships now. Um, I think what he was saying was that because the demand was so high that people aren't able to get them in the U.S. for use because the Asian companies were actually ferrying them back over the water Empty as soon as they would empty them because there's so much more shit, I guess, that needs to be exported to the U.S. I think this does that sound correct? Yeah, or that's. No? No, that
1: that that's actually remarkably correct. I think that's like ninety five percent of it. I mean it's it's the fact that the container ports are so backed up, like LA and Long Beach and Oakland, like the big ports are so backed up that those ships have to wait at anchorage, which means they're you know, they're they're a mile off the coast. They drop their anchor and they sit there. And they have to sit there for like ten days because the port is so congested, so backed up. So when the ship actually gets in the port and it discharges all those boxes, the first thing immediately it's like the last the last boxes off the ship. They're hauling ass back to China or Vietnam or Malaysia or wherever because they don't – they're not going to sit there and wait for another two or three days for the United States exporters to load all their junk on the ship because right. that, that, that's a backhaul. It, the term in the industry is a backhaul. It's a low-margin cargo that isn't very efficient. Right. It's a backhaul. And we and don't so, export so there's no anything conflict.
0: anyways in the U.S. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, if you look at the stuff we export on those ships, it's actually kind of depressing, Chris. It's like corrugated cardboard and like recyclable scrap steel. And it's all this junk. It's kind of depressing, actually.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's not surprising. I can't believe we're still exporting anything. But uh, so what does the landscape now look like? You know, in comparison to prior to COVID, I mean, do you think that you're saying, all right, well, look, these container rates were already about to catch an upswing. And then we got all these stimulus checks, and that has increased retail spending. And there's nothing Americans like to spend more on than cheap shit from China and Malaysia and Vietnam. Uh, but now, heading into 2021, Let's assume we're going to get maybe one more stimulus package. Uh, what does it look like? You know, six months, twelve months, eighteen months out.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely the right question. And th- the reason that I'm very interested Thank in you. shipping now. <laughs> no, you're you're. At, you told me you didn't know anything. You'd be a shipping, fucking like, great and...
0: politician. You know that you really <laughs> you really would. As I was trying to say earlier, that you're like you're somebody that's got their shit together. You come off like even if you look at Jay's photo on his uh, on his Value Investors Edge or on his. Uh, on his Twitter feed, you just get that vibe from like, hey, this is just a guy that would make a great politician. Like you're like the congressional <laughs> hearings the other day. would be like, uh, excuse me, oh, Ken man. Griffin, can you uh, can you explain why you were caught banging a hooker in the bathroom of Citadel? He'd be like, well, thank you very much for the question. It's, a, it's really a wonderful question, you know. Like, oh, gosh. All right. Sorry, um, Jay. Yeah. Go ahead. No, this is great, man.
1: You're you're buttering me up. You're having some fun here, but no, look. I mean, the big thing in shipping right now is the, the pending environmental regulations. And and you know, I don't want to get political on you know whether or not w- the environmental regulations make sense or you know whether or not they're a good idea. But face it, that like it or not, no. com- like it or not, they're coming. Right? I mean, you cannot deny, especially in Europe, that major environmental regulations are coming down the pike. And what does that mean for shipping? Well, it means there's going to be a two tier or even a three tier market where the modern vessels are going to outperform the older vessels significantly. And I don't know exactly what the regulations are going to look like yet, because they're still in the works, right? They're still negotiating these things. But what's going to happen is some sort of, it's either going to be some sort of a carbon tax, which has been tossed around for what, they've they've been talking about carbon tax now for what, decades? Um, But we're getting really close to something in Europe with a carbon tax on shipping. Another thing they're talking about is an emissions cap. So it's not so much a tax on the carbon. But there's a maximum emission that these ships can make. So that means these older vessels might even be like disqualified from the global fleet. Right. Or if they're not disqualified, they have to do something called slow steaming, because I and I don't want to get into science too much. I'm not a physicist. I you know you said I was a PhD candidate. Yeah, but I do the soft you know easy stuff. Uh, international relations. And you said science. that.
0: You wrote to me that you were a PhD <laughs> candidate. I hope that's true too. Otherwise, Harvard's going to be on my ass. It's gonna be like uh, what was
1: that guy Raging Bull or whatever who said he was <laughs> he was like a Harvard Business School uh, guest and he was like faking the whole thing or something. Oh,
0: Jason Bond, yeah, oh, yeah. I got invited God. to speak at Harvard Business School. It's like <laughs> actually, you paid two thousand dollars to rent out a banquet hall at like the Harvard Extension, uh, you know, 4H Club or whatever it was. You know, ten miles off campus. I remember seeing that when he put that thing up, that background image of the logo. That that he yeah. was standing in front of, him. I'm like, that's not a Harvard logo. I don't know what <laughs> oh it is. My gosh,
1: yeah, no. So so I'm legitimate. You can Google me. You see me on their websites, but uh, <laughs> you know, I ask my professors. they will be like, yeah, he's the he's the slowest kid in the class. But uh, anyways, uh, <laughs> I'm not a you know I'm not a physicist, right? But vessel curves, the engine production curve is very exponential, which means that if you're going at like say nine or ten knots which is what they, the speed they use in the water in knots it's instead of miles per hour. If you're going at 9 or 10 knots and you speed up from 9 or 10 to like 12, it's not a 20% increase in fuel consumption.
0: Right. It like right.
1: doubles. It like doubles the fuel consumption. And it, and it goes and it's like an exponential curve. And it gets to a point where like you get to like 14 or 15 knots and you're just incinerating fuel. Like it's disgusting. Yeah.
0: So what I mean, happens negative is these... negative operating leverage on your fuel.
1: <laughs> exactly. It's it's horrible. So what could happen is I don't think they're going to just disqualify these ships from the fleet. That would be pretty draconian. But I think what could happen with these emissions caps is a lot of these older vessels are going to have to slow down significantly. And think about what that does to the global supply and demand balance when all these older ships that are maybe anything built before, say, 2014, 2015 has to slow down by 30 or 40%. It's like this huge artificial reduction in the global supply. Without a single ship being demolished it's like you've knocked out you know 20 thirty percent of the global time sure yeah yeah so imagine what I'm thinking you know sitting here as an investor you know thinking about supply and demand and violently cyclical commodity sector uh, you know I'm just licking my chops I'm like you know Greta Thunberg comes on I'm like you know rooting her on here like let's do it <laughs> <laughs> so, like let's get more let's get more of these restrictions on ships and, and I think it's coming I, I don't know exactly when I, there's a proposal for 2023 that's on the table right now. Uh, But that's that's big picture, Chris. That's longer term. Right. And that's a very bullish tailwind in terms of like next year. One of my favorite sectors right now is actually the dry bulk sector, which is funny because that's what we started off. We were riffing about it. Right. How terrible it was. But the dry bulk sector has like one last, I think, like one last gasp of energy because that's coal and iron ore and all this stuff that's not very sexy. And it's the exact opposite of all the environmental stuff I was talking about. But that is everything to do with infrastructure spending. And that's what you're going to see across most of Asia, right. parts of Europe, and even the United States. We're talking about infrastructure, right? Yeah. Yep. So more more iron ore specifically is going to start moving because iron ore and coal are the two biggest imp- inputs into steel production, right? To make steel, you have to bring in a metallurgical coal to heat the the metal up high enough. You have to bring this iron ore mostly from Australia and from Brazil. And Brazil to China is a major, major trade route that's just starting to open up. And Brazil to China is almost three times further than Australia to China. So we're really bullish about that shift, that is, shift away from is Australia. Is the
0: U.S. big enough? Is our, you know, infra- when I think about countries taking on infrastructure projects, I th- immediately think about China and I think about, you know, them building cities where there aren't any people, you know, which they've been doing for the last 20 years. But is the U.S. big enough if we want to, you know, say Biden signs off on a trillion dollar infrastructure bill? Is that big enough to make a dent on the global scale for uh, global dry bulk? I mean, is is the U.S. big enough to have a, a major impact? I mean, I don't know, relative to the size of what the sector is?
1: No, I think the U.S. is more of just kind of a signal or a, right. a symptom, if you will, okay. of like the global trend. I, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying buy dry bulk because of the United States infrastructure bill. Uh, not at all. I think the United States infrastructure bill is going to be mostly like domestically sourced and it's going to be, uh, you know, Maybe not quite as efficient because of those kind of things. But I, I think it's just a symptom of the global trend, which I think is is towards kind of an infrastructure-focused recovery. Because right now, the recovery or the stimulus, it's basically just print money and throw it at people. Really, that's like the plan we're doing right now. We're just going to print more and more money, just throw it at more and more people and cross our fingers and hope it turns out well. At some point, you have to focus back onto real industry. And I, and I think we're already starting to see that happen in Asia. And the United States is already starting to do that. Europe's going to have to start doing that. I mean, we talk about the United States having dilapidated infrastructure, right? I mean, they always talk about the bridges that are falling down and stuff. I mean, Europe's in a similar similar situation, if not worse.
0: Does it bother you as somebody that's constantly watching trade that the U.S. doesn't produce anything? Yeah, I mean,
1: there's a lot of different angles to that question, right? I mean, from the U.S. citizen standpoint, you know, it's not healthy when you import absolutely everything right, right? so as, a, as like a u.s citizen am i super stoked about that uh, no right um as an investor as someone who focuses on the maritime shipping lanes i just kind of have to accept reality for what it is and kind of flex and adapt to that
0: i mean like uh, when we were trying to import the base chemicals that we needed to put drugs together to fight covid and we couldn't get them because they were all coming out of china i mean that that's a real consequence of not having any production here domestically, right? I mean, let's just talk as, you know, citizens, right? You're in the Air Force, you're an American, you're a patriot, you're a nice guy. I mean, l- let's talk citizen to citizen. I mean, like are you bothered by that? How bothered by that are you as a as an American?
1: I think supply chain security is is the biggest thing that's coming out of COVID. And some somebody really really have to start focusing on. And it's not just – you mentioned medical drugs, and I, I think that's spot on. But I think another thing to look at is, is some of these rare earths and some of these heavy metals, like the stuff we're going to start using in yeah. uh, electric vehicle batteries. right? Like Even things like uh, – like I'm not an expert in this, so I'm just kind of naming things. But things like cobalt, right? things that are inputs into these, into these electric vehicle, uh, vehicle batteries, uh, things like that. We need to make sure that we have a supply chain security. And we cannot rely on one uh, one country, right? We can't rely just on China or just on India or or one place. And that's true. And that's not even saying something about China, right? That's true for any country. I I mean, even if I was China, I wouldn't want to rely on one country, right? Right. You have to diversify your supply chain. And I think we've done a poor job of that over the last 10 to 15 years. And so I think we need to start diversifying the supply chain. And I don't think it's just the United States. I think Australia needs to do this. I think Europe needs to do this. Even China needs to diversify their supply chain. And and China got woken up to that fact uh, when the the last administration when we had the trade war. Right. China was like, oh man, like our entire like economy is based on exporting stuff. You call it crap, but you know, <laughs> exporting crap to Europe and United States. And even China was like, well, I don't know if this is sustainable anymore. So you're going to have to diversify the entire global supply chain. And and it, diversification is not always efficient. Right? It costs more money, and that's why we haven't done it. And, and so we're going to have to spend a little bit more money to do that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and it is crap. I mean there there are some – I'm sure some necessities. Like I'm using probably a computer and some components and shit here that were imported from Korea. But most of this stuff we get from China is if you go into a Target and you look at you – know, you go through like the houseware section and you find little – little stupid things that nobody should ever need in their entire life, like a sign that says bistro that you hang up in your kitchen is always the example I bring up, or a little, you know, fake potted plant, or, you know, just some little fucking knickknack, you know, bric-a-brac, just garbage crap that really doesn't, I mean, it doesn't even have an aesthetic purpose for existing. I mean, I just feel like it's a vortex of, like, you know, aesthetic pleasure. Any kind of crap like that, if you turn it over, you're going to see, you know, made in Vietnam, made in China. That's what we're importing. We're just importing useless shit that nobody needs You ever see the office when Oscar is balancing <laughs> he's balancing Michael Scott's budget he's like this blue line here represents things that nobody ever should need like magic sets and bass fishing equipment you know <laughs> and that is oh, I mean yeah. that's when I think about what we're importing like that is the garbage we're importing and happily happily stocking our our homes with as well, well yeah. too. You better stay out of
1: my kitchen because I got like three of those bistro signs out there. So do you really? (laughs) No, but look, I mean that's that's human nature, right? I mean, if it wasn't the bistro sign and the other crap we don't need, it'd be something else. And I mean, humans aren't naturally, you know, the most sophisticated savers and investors. And like, we're gonna blow our money on something stupid, right? So you know, I I I lived in Vegas for four years, right? And I love Vegas, but like, you ever want to look at, you know people allocating their money in poor in poor ways i mean just just go stroll around what are some what are
0: some of the best uh give me a story about vegas what's some of the craziest shit you saw while you lived in vegas Oh man,
1: this is a recorded podcast with 160,000 people in
0: it. Right? <laughs> Who the hell told you I have 160,000 people listening to this? Yeah. I don't know.
1: I looked at your Twitter before I came on here and I was just blown away. I was like, "Wow, well done, QTR research." All right, Kill
0: so it. here's your chance to show people you're a human being and not just a robot that looks at shipping stocks. <laughs> tell me about tell me about the fucking craziest thing that you ever saw in Vegas.
1: Oh my gosh. Ah. Uh, me on the spot with that one this is you're supposed to tell me you're going to ask me a question like this
0: <laughs> i <laughs> no, told look, you when we started the interview i did not prepare i have no notes you sent me like six pages worth of stuff you're like hey if you could review this before the podcast i was like ah <laughs> look uh, i think go ahead I, I think the
1: thing besides the obvious i mean in vegas every everything's excess right so you, you see the people you know strolling around with you know Excess of everything, right? But beyond that, I think you see a lot of human nature when you look at, you know, I play a lot of craps, right? Wow, I, I can see that. too, baby. Pay, that's how I pay my taxes. Because look, Nevada doesn't have a state income tax. And the property tax in Nevada is very reasonable. You know, I, I, I'm going to be like persecuted by Nevadans for saying it's reasonable. But my God, I mean, compared to every other state, like Nevada property tax, like it's very reasonable. So the way they make all their money is from tourists and from gambling and hotel taxes. So I like playing craps and I, I play more than I should, probably about once a month. And I consider that paying my taxes. But I am kind of used to that. I'm like a robot that analyzes shipping stocks. I play craps a little bit more like a robot, I guess. Like I'm always pass line, max odds, like, you know, so on and so forth. And I'll do like, you know, two or three numbers, max odds. But you'll, you'll watch a lot of ways people gamble. And as the alcohol flows, and I, I'm a connoisseur kind of, of alcohol myself, but as you see that, you see human nature and human behavior. And the bets just get wilder and wilder, and you're betting on shit that doesn't even make sense. Like gambling, you're probably gonna lose, right? That, that someone has to pay for the utility bills. But you'll see people gambling in, in ways that, I mean, you're you're betting on stuff that has a house edge of like forty percent. I mean, there's sucker there's sucker bets, and then there's like, holy shit, dude, did you like, do you know anything about gambling, right? They're, you know what I'm saying?
0: Like, well, this is team. this is a. I'm actually glad you brought this up because when I play craps, I and, and really when I play almost anything, I purposefully play the worst odds on the table, and I'll tell you why, because for a long time, when I was like 18, I got super interested in, you know, gambling, right, and so (laughs) you start reading books about everything, you know, blackjack basic strategy, what, you know, how the house makes its money on all the conventional games, Right? You add the second zero on the roulette wheel. You pay 35 to 1 when there's 36 options on the board. Uh, you know, you learn that basic strategy can narrow the house edge in blackjack. You got to get the money out when the dealer's got a 6 showing and a 5 and a 4. You get a chance to split and double do it then, blah, 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 blah. You learn all the rules. We even, got, even dabbled in card counting for a little while and actually even got pretty good at it for a while. Obviously not that good at it because... Uh, <laughs> I didn't it like, I didn't make a lot of money like doing it. Right, exactly. <laughs> you got numbers
1: floating around in there.
0: <laughs> but but what I'll say is after playing and trying to beat the house for years and years and years, I just surrendered and just said, "You know what? I'm going to lose." Um because here I am, you know, playing perfect basic strategy or like you said, playing the pass line in two combats, uh, you know, with max odds whatever and trying to beat the house. Uh, but it just doesn't happen. So I might as well have fun. And so like a couple years back, and it's not a product of not understanding the games because I know them all very well, but like a couple years back, I just switched my mindset completely. And I play like the most absurd things because when I do win, I want it to be like substantial and I can celebrate it. And if I lose, you know, then I was just losing while I was, you know, playing the best odds also too. and uh, And so... I don't know. So now I play like all these crazy, uh, you know, strategies that I came up with that I know have absolute dog shit odds. Like in craps, I always play don't pass first off. Somebody joked about that the other day on Twitter. Like, I bet you're a don't pass line guy. It's like, actually, I am. So I always play don't pass because I know the sevens are going to come out way more often than anything else. And so at least even though the house is still taking their cut, I at least feel like uh, you know, I'm I'm winning when the sevens come out. The right. and, and actually, I think the don't pass odds are slightly better than the pass line, too. Uh, right, right. I can't break it down. Maybe you can for me. But then I also play like, you know, look, if somebody gets hot, and I know getting hot isn't even a thing, right? You can't say, oh, this number's been hot. This number's been coming out. It's all just nonsense, right? Just because black comes out 50 times doesn't mean that the next roll is any more likely that – you know, red is going to come out. It's right, right. There's still a 50-50 chance. I get it. But it's just more fun to just kind of surrender to the game and just say whatever. And, you know, I have lost a lot of money doing it, but I've enjoyed myself. And also I've had those moments where, you know, you, you hit a, you know, you, you hit boxcars at 30 to one and then, you know, you press the bet And you hit it again. And then then you take your money and you fucking walk. It hardly ever happens. As you know, the odds of that happening are, you know, one in 300 or one in 50,000 or whatever. But occasionally (laughs) it does happen. And for me, I I just get more fun in playing like that now because of all the years trying to manage it and still succumbing to losing, anyways.
1: Does that make sense? Yeah, well, you got the right mindset. And and that's why, like, when I say I'm going out of the ship, I'd always joke, it's not even really a joke. You know, I'm going to go pay my taxes tonight. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I'm having fun doing it. Like how many states in the United States can you pay your taxes and have an absolute blast doing it? <laughs> right? Like how like where is that? Where else can I do that? I don't know. Maybe Florida or something. I'm, I'm not sure how their taxation system works. But look, I mean, but you have the right mindset in the sense that it's just fun and you're having fun with it. Right. You're not going to the craps table trying to make a fortune on it. Right. And that is and, and maybe I did a poor job of setting up the metaphor or the analogy or whatever. But that's the kind of stuff I'm seeing in the markets. And that's the kind of stuff I see in Las Vegas, right? This market in 2020 was so hot for so many day traders and so many new entrants to the market that, you know, folks are forgetting that, you know, they were gambling essentially, mm-hmm. right? And folks are forgetting that maybe they got lucky or maybe things were just, you know, lining up correctly and maybe they had the right mindset starting out that, that I'm just going to gamble a little bit in the stock market. Right, but now it's kind of getting, I think, a lot of folks' heads, and they're saying, "Well, you know, I have this special sauce or the secret sauce." And look, I mean, I've made so many mistakes in my in my ten or twelve years, twelve years overall, and ten years in shipping, that you know, you, you get to, you start to be nervous when things are going your way. You're like, "Wait, yeah, minute, what yep. am I missing? What's going <laughs> wrong?" Yep. And, and and that's that's what I'm trying to get, that was, what I was trying to line up a little bit with what I've seen in Vegas is when everyone gets there, everybody kind of jokes and knows that it's a gamble. Right. But then you get on this hot streak and you start losing touch with maybe someone like you smart and walks away. But very few people walk away at the top. Right.
0: Well, and and you learn the hard way, whether it's with the market or whether it's in Vegas, you learn by consistently getting hot and then giving all the money back. And it's just the same way with the market. You know, just as soon as you start to feel indestructible with the market, something absolutely insane happens. You know, and uh, and you get humbled, and you get reminded that you're not the king, and you're not God. I put up this quote yesterday from uh, Thomas Sowell. I'm gonna read it real quick, and it says, "Where are you, you fucker?" Some of the biggest cases of mistaken identity are among intellectuals who have trouble remembering that they are not God. And so, I don't know how many intellectuals there are uh, pressing their luck at casinos, but I, I imagine there's some. But just like in the market, too, you may be smart enough to understand equity valuation and you may catch the tailwind of this, you know, Fed stimulus plan and think that you're indestructible. But that like you said, there's a big difference if you've if you've had your comeuppance more than once, whether it's at a crap's table or whether it's in the market, I think it then becomes a natural reaction to get nervous once you start to do well, like you're saying. And and I think unfortunately, some people never learn that. They never hit the there's no learning curve. They just you know, they kind of always just keep going and going and going. And I, I don't know. I'm thankful that at least even though it took me some time, I started to realize eventually that um, – you know, to kind of think that way, right? To be nervous when things are going well and to uh, – I don't know. That's why I don't, Actually, let, I don't let my winners ride as much as I should probably either.
1: Yeah, I mean it's, it's hard to really know exactly how to do – I mean gambling's gambling, right? But in, in terms of the stock market, it's hard to know exactly how to do it without hindsight. Right, it's always easy to come back and be like, "Well, this is how I should have taken 2020, or this is how I should have done 2019, or, or so on and so forth." But one thing I do, and, and again, I no investment advice or anything like that. I'm just sharing my personal approach. But one thing I do is I limit my allocation to sectors or themes or particular companies. So, like I've been doing shipping for more than 10 years. We have, I would say, I hope not too boastful but a a pretty formidable track record in shipping of of doing well but i limit my own allocation to shipping to about 30 to 40 percent of of my investments and and i'm very confident about the sector and I, i think right i don't know how next year's gonna go i don't know how next week's gonna go to be honest i mean i hope it goes well i we've positioned ourselves in what i believe are good companies but the stock prices right i mean those can be a little bit random but my allocation is limited right and as the you know the market goes up and up and up I try to keep that allocation band fairly constant. So when you have a couple months like we've just had, there's actually a lot of cash being taken off the table. Right? There's that big thing, diamond hands, right, with Wall Street bets and all that. Look, I mean, okay, I, I get it. It's kind of funny. It's kind of cute. But when you're making great profits, it's always good to take a little bit of profit off the table and always be responsible and diversify the rest of your portfolio a little bit. And I, and I see that happen too much in the market. And I know it's not my job to be like you know, babysitting or moralizing or anything like that, but I just hate to see it happen because at some point, Chris, and I know we have different, maybe a little bit different macro views, right? I know you, you talk a lot about gold and silver and that sort of stuff, but at some point, right, things aren't going to be good in the market. We don't know if it's right. next month or next year, but at some point there's going to be a reckoning, right? The tide's going to wash out and there's going to be a lot of people that are naked, right? To use that Correct. Ryan Buffett quote. And you don't want the tide to wash out. And you're invested 150% on margin in junk. Right. Right. So be very careful. And, and it, not investment advice. And I apologize if I'm moralizing, but that's just something I, I see a lot.
0: What other sectors interest you other than shipping? I mean, if you're just very basic, looking out 10 years, wh- where do you think the biggest, broadest uh, secular tailwinds are? you know i tend to be contrarian
1: uh, and i think most value investors by nature tend to be contrarian because you're buying things that are cheaper and, and not loved but i really am interested in in different sectors of the energy uh, side so especially uh, midstreams right some of the longer term infrastructure parts and i don't mean like gathering like, like some of the oil fields some of the really small gathering pipelines but i mean like the big interstate pipelines basically the arteries of, of the nation's uh, energy infrastructure and i see things like what happened in texas And it's just, we don't even have all the facts yet, and it's really sad, and I I don't want to speak out of turn too much on what's happening in Texas, Uh, but it's just an example of what happens when the energy infrastructure breaks down, right? You don't have enough pipelines, or you didn't have enough supply agreements, and you didn't have that sort of thing. And I think Texas is a big wake-up call uh, to the United States that we need to be careful about how we're modernizing our energy sources, and we need to be careful to ensure that our energy pipelines are solid and that our uh, oil sourcing and our natural gas sourcing and our power plant supplies are in check. And I think there's been this big wave the last couple of years of just dumping everything energy related. Right. Whether it's a pipeline like energy transfers, one that I own, it's kind of hated, but that's one uh, enterprise product partners, EPD. I'm long both these stocks for disclosure. But you know, those are examples of like core national arterial energy infrastructure that I've been investing in and, and I guess betting on into some sense that they're going to appreciate over the next decade.
0: All right. So let's wrap up. And by doing that, I want to give my listeners uh some milk without having to buy the cow. Give me two shipping names that you like right now and give me a quick, uh, you know, one minute pitch without giving your, your subscription level detail away as to what your secrets are. Um, but tell me, uh, tell me like two names in the shipping industry that you're looking at that you find interesting and kind of why. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, and you know, the, appreciate all the caveats and that. And of course, disclosures, right? I'm going to be long both of these names because Perfect. if I didn't like, the, if I didn't, you know, if I, if I like the company, I'm going to buy it. Right. Exactly. I, so it's always crazy when someone says like they start recommending or suggesting, and I don't recommend, I'm just talking about my research, but someone talks about a company, they don't own it. I'm like, what the hell? Like, why should I listen to you? But right. anyways, um, one of the most recent companies that I've been very excited about is Zim integrated shipping services. Z I M. It's a recent IPO and it's a container liner. So the container liners are those big companies that are moving those retail goods, right? Target, Walmart, Amazon type goods, across the oceans, right? From Asia to Europe and from Asia to the United States. And so think of the container liners kind of like FedEx or UPS. Right? They're the big logistics powerhouses. They're not necessarily owning the ships and trading and flipping the ships themselves. They're more so like logistics and, and integration in that regard. So Zim was a recent IPO, and they're based in Israel, so they're, they're not as well-known in the US markets. They're number 10 uh, in the global list of things. However, they belong to an alliance that includes two of the world's largest shippers. And this alliance together controls 34% of the global trade. So we're talking about like a company that basically controls one-third of the global trade. This thing ipo would in the middle of the GameStop panic. with all the Wall Street bets and all that nonsense going on. So the IPO was very coldly received because hedge funds were worried about blowing up. Uh, I've heard, I don't know for sure, I've heard this from a source, but that several hedge funds actually backed out of buying shares because they were worried about their liquidity. So this thing IPO'd, dropped like $3 on its, it it, it priced underneath its range. It was supposed to price 16 to 19. It priced $15 underneath its range. It dropped several dollars from there. And so this thing opened up at like 11.50. I've comped it to the two closest comps, which are Hopic, Lloyd, and Marisk. I know you wanted this to be quick, but I'm, I'm trying to set the table a little bit here. Um, if you comp them to their two closest comps, Zim is arguably worth, I say arguably worth, because we're using this based on comp analysis, somewhere between 50 and $60 a share. And even right now, even after publishing some of my research on Seeking Alpha, and I, it's free. I think people can go to Seeking Alpha and put in Mincemeyer, and they can read my whole report there for free. I'm not trying to sell you a subscription service. Read, read the report for free and see what you think. Uh, but even now, it trades about $21, and if you comp it to the nearest peers, it's arguably worth 50 to 60. So that's that's probably my number one c- conviction idea at this moment. And if you want one additional one, I think a derivative way to play the container market is via the ship lessors themselves these are not the companies that are doing the shipping. This isn't UPS, this isn't FedEx. These are like the guys that own the trucks, that own the airplanes, that rent or lease those trucks and airplanes to UPS and FedEx. Right, they're, they're just a tonnage provider. It's just an asset play. And my favorite play right there is, right now is Navios Maritime Containers, NMCI. I got a caution on this one though, Chris. There's governance concerns on this company. It's a smaller cap company. Uh, the the management structure is a little bit uh, the board isn't stacked with highly qualified private equity types you know like it's it's a little bit rickety so I want to caution folks on this one um, it's my number one personal position I have about 10% of my wealth in this company so I have a very high conviction position and I believe there's significant upside on it but I do want to caution that this one's a little bit more risky the stock symbol is N M C I and they're going to merge. In about eh, probably about three or four weeks, they're going to merge into Navios Partners, which is NMM. So you can basically buy either one of those companies. Uh, the ratio is 0.39, so you can just kind of do the math and see which one's cheaper. But so Zim is kind of my number one overall like high-quality idea, uh, and that report's available for free on Seeking Alpha. And then Navios Containers, MCI or NMM is the partners. I'm long both of those. Uh, it's kind of the more higher-risk A higher upside potential name. So appreciate you letting me talk about those, Chris. I I hope the caveats are clear there. Look, this is not investment recommendations. I'm literally just telling people what I own.
0: That's great, man. And I think the caveats are crystal clear. My listeners should know better, anyways, than to listen to anything anybody says on this podcast. Listen, (laughs) Jay Minzmeyer, fine gentleman, a patriot. Thank you for your service to the country. Thank you for your service to the podcast this Sunday morning. Thank you for everything. I will put all of your links and everything in the podcast description. And if you guys want to know more, uh, just shoot Jay a message. Tell him you heard him on the podcast. And uh, I'm sure he would be more than happy to accommodate you and, and give you whatever you want. Right, Jay?
1: Awesome, Chris. Thank you so much. Last thing I want to note I, I did reopen. We have two week free trials to our research service. I, I open those up a couple times a year. I made sure they're going to be open until the end of February. I know some folks don't listen to the podcast right away. So if you're listening like in March and the, the free trial might have closed, uh, send me a message on Twitter or on Seeking Alpha and I'll, I'll be happy to let you take a look at the research uh, on a trial basis. I really appreciate you listening here. And I've, I've really enjoyed listening to Chris's podcast what's it been like three years chris i mean you've really taken off here on this podcast
0: it has actually like almost three years to the day believe it or not that's interesting i didn't even realize that but yeah it's been yeah. been three years it's been, it's good, been fun man. to track it it's been fun to track it and dude it's such an honor to just be on this podcast and chat with oh you. It's been a lot stop just stop knocking off jay all right brother i'll oh, see gosh. you soon the next time we uh both do a charitable event and you are Finally dressed and i roll out of bed hungover. we will meet again at, <laughs> Sounds the, great, Chris. Uh, at the cocktail hour take care brother thanks jay mincemeyer that was the one the only jay mincemeyer how about that mr uh jay has been you know asking me to come on for a while and uh, and i like jay a lot as a person which is pretty much my you know i i couldn't honestly really i'm not super interested in shipping but i i, I like jay he's a nice guy and uh, and I think that sometimes that supersedes the, uh, the subject matter for me. And I'm actually glad I had him on because I learned uh, a lot about that. So all his shit is in the podcast description. It's Sunday. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. Let's enjoy the rest of our day, folks. And I got a couple of nice guests lined up for the next couple of weeks. So thank you for my patrons for your continued support. And I am out of here. Peace.